Good morning. This morning's Bible reading is found in Daniel chapter 3. We're starting at verse 13 and going through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Good morning. A few years ago, Pastor Chris Hodges of Birmingham, Alabama, pastor of Church of Highlands, went online, was strolling through Facebook and clicking likes on different things. And he clicked like on some articles that were posted by a conservative author. Didn't think much of it, seemed pretty innocent. Well, there was an English teacher who lived in that area who saw it and didn't like the author who he had clicked on. So this English teacher took pictures of the likes, created a Facebook page about this pastor and his liking this conservative writer. The English teacher said, I would be upset if it comes off as me judging him. I'm not saying he's racist. I'm saying he likes someone who posts things that do not seem culturally sensitive to me. Well, that began to snowball that Facebook page. And not too long after, the housing authority canceled the rent for one of the campuses that the church had rented to do ministry to homeless people at. And, I mean, just think about that, right? A local government shut down a free clinic for the poor in the middle of a health crisis. Why? They said, because he does not reflect our views. Well, that snowballed even more. So that the Board of Education terminated the lease on the campus where they were renting for one of their church services. It was a high school or a middle school, I can't remember, but and they were paying somewhere in the neighborhood of $800,000 a year to use that. And they canceled it for the same reason. And I'm sure if I use the word cancel culture, you're familiar with this. This is the age that we live in. As we've been studying through the book of Babylon, we're going to take a look today at Babylon's cancel culture. But I asked this question, what is cancel culture? David Jeremiah, in a recent book, had an entire chapter dedicated to cancel culture today. 
And in that, he quoted a professor who defined it this way, there's no single accepted definition of cancel culture. But at its worst, it's about unaccountable groups of successfully applying pressure to punish someone for perceived wrong opinions. The victim ends up losing their job or significantly harmed. Cancel culture today. And we just read a section of scripture in Babylon that is essentially cancel culture. It reads like this. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. Now that's extreme, an extreme form of cancel culture, but yet it's, you're canceled. I mean, you can't get more canceled than that. You are burnt up in a fiery furnace. So we want to go into today's lesson and we're going to look at Babylon's cancel culture. And here's what I'm, I'm going to say to you at the outset. We're going to see things in this story that apply to today, but also to a future that's coming. And just as a review, remember last week, if I uh, put up our picture of our statue, um, King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. It was terrifying to him. He could not find anyone to come and, and give him the interpretation of the dream. Daniel comes and gives him the interpretation. Your dream was about this terrifying image. And this image was made up of uh, different metals that represent each different coloration there is a different metal and it represents a different kingdom that comes into power. But you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And in that moment, Daniel points King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet right at that time, to his God. It says, it's the, my God that has given you the kingdom that you have. You're the head of gold. And in his sovereignty, his, he has given you earth, earthly sovereignty over uh, areas, power, riches, everything that comes with that. And here's what we're going to get into that segues into today's message. The first point is the values of Babylonian cancel culture. And the first one I want to say is that it values gifts over the gift giver. Now, what I'm doing here is I want to show you in that Babylonian culture what they held as values. Okay, that leads into the cancel culture. And we're going to find similarities, but I, I think it was, I can't remember which service, but one of the services last week I asked this question. Was Nebuchadnezzar a believer? Because remember when Daniel told him the, the interpretation of the dream? And then he said in that moment, your God is Lord of all kings, Lord of all gods. Your God is, he recognized him. In that moment, and I was like, there's something coming out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar that sounds a lot like he has belief. He has some measure of belief there. His belief comes from this circumstance where he could not grasp this dream. It was terrifying him. He couldn't sleep. I mean, do you remember the words we were looking at there? It's like his sleep uh, abandoned him. And he's troubled by all this. And yet, Daniel, and through his God, alleviated that. They told him the answer of the dream. He's sleeping now. He's going and he's resting. You've helped me. And here's what I want you to see in this moment. The very first point of cancel culture, because we don't know how much time has passed, something a year or two, because he's constructed this monstrosity of, a, of, a, of another image. Perhaps he took the image that he had in his mind. He said, I'm going to make my own image. You're going to see as we go through this. But he is forgotten that the God in that moment, because suddenly 
He's elevating an image that demonstrates who he is of power. And this is something that we commonly do. Just like the prodigal son. Remember, we always think the story of the prodigal son who ran away. It's like, that guy was bad. He wanted all his dad's stuff. He didn't care about the relationship with his dad. He just wanted his dad's stuff. Give me my inheritance. And yet the older brother was the same way because he got upset. He got upset as well. Both of them wanted their dad's stuff. They just tried to get it through different means. The prodigal son said, just give it to me. I'm going to go live it out. But the other brother wanted it by righteous acts. I have obeyed all that you said to do. I've been a good brother, a good son. They both, they, they didn't love the father. They loved the father's stuff. And this can be a problem. In the, in the culture, of the cancel culture often drives our hearts towards loving, not God, but perhaps what God has blessed us with. He answered the prayers, or the cries, I should say. He answered the prayers of Daniel's, but the the, the cries of Nebuchadnezzar for help me solve this sleep problem. What is this terrifying dream? And not only through that, he says, I have given you everything through the dream. You're the head of gold. I gave you that position. I gave you the power and the, the position and everything that comes with that. And then what has he done? He's already abandoned him. And as we look through the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to see faith that looks like that. Maybe you know someone like that. They've expressed faith. There's a moment where it says, it sure sounds like they believe, but as they walk along through life, they fade. Suddenly, they seem more in love with the world and what it has to offer. They fall in love with the gifts that come from the Father and not the Father. And as we go through even this lesson, there's a point where I'm going to ask that question is, do you love the Father? Do you love God? Nebuchadnezzar is in love with himself. He loves the gifts over the gift giver. He's created this monstrosity of a statue. Statue. So it says in verse three, King Nebuchadnezzar, or chapter three, verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. So there you have it. You're beginning to see it unfold today. He's created this monstrosity of a statue. Now. What you're going to see next in Babylonian cancel culture is it, it values validation over truth. Verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he is calling together all the point people uh, to come and view this thing, but it's a dedication. You've got the invitation in the mail, come, and there's this validation ceremony that's going to happen. In other words, this represents a symbol of who I am and my power, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to come and, and pay homage to it, and you're going to bow down and worship this thing. Now, all of these different leaders, satraps, officials, counselors, governors, you kind of do the math looking at the size of Babylon and its territory. It's estimated there could have been as many as 300,000 that are gathering together. That's a pretty significant part, dedication party, right? And there's a problem with this, though, because we look at this and we go, but is it true? There's a way in which the truth was given to him. 
God gave you your kingdom, you're the head of gold. I'm going to build an idol as a testimony to who I am and my power. And he's forgotten God. And there's not truth in that. You've forgotten God. Yet we're going to validate it. And, and the thing I'm driving at here is to understand in cancel culture is we can be driven to walk with the crowd to validate things that maybe they're not true. And shouldn't we question that? First of all, um, God is not interested in being worshipped through something, but in spirit and in truth, not crucifixes and statues. The Bible says, worship him in spirit and in truth. The spirit in here that leads us towards the truth of his word, not through physical things like what the statue he's built. Secondly, I would say, why not true? And we went through this when, when we studied Colossians earlier in the year, in chapter 1, where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, don't erect a statue or painting or any physical item because it's going to be defective. And the words in Colossians 1 literally means solo icon, the solo image, the only thing we are to look at that has some physicality to it that is supposed to point our mind to that's what God is like is Jesus, his son. And Tim Keller talks about this. We covered it when we went through Colossians. And there's a reason for that because idols often conceal truth as much as they reveal truth. And then you get an image in your head that is concealing truth. You could create an image that is power and powerful, yet conceal other attributes of God like love and grace and mercy. In more modern times, we might create an image that's all about love. That's what we're going to focus on, the love. And forget about justice and righteousness. And there's a warning in Scripture to not create images. But yet here we see in the Babylonian cancel culture, it's going to value gifts over the one who's given the gifts, and it's going to also try to get you to validate truth. It's going to, well, let me rephrase that. It's going to get you to try to validate something that may not be true, and it's going to put peer pressure on, which, by the way, let me just say that if you do the math on the cubits, if you study this, it's a, it's a weird-looking statue, the dimensions of it, because it's very narrow and skinny. It's a skinny figure. It's only got six cubits here, but it's you know this many cubits wide. And what I was reading about this, and it was comparing it to other statues, like the one where the, the, the big statues got two feet and the ships came underneath the legs. That was proportionate. This is not proportionate. So it even kind of adds to that it's going to conceal something because I, this image look, it doesn't look that accurate. But this is what uh, Nebuchadnezzar is driving at. And he goes on to see that he's going to force them to validate here, right? So it, that means it's going to value power without any grace. Verse 4, as we read through this, says, <clears throat> back in uh, verse 4, And the, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast 
into the burning, fiery furnace. So you can see here, they're going to force the validation. Now, the thing I want to point out here, there's, there's, there's no tolerance for perhaps another opinion to ask, hey, is this accurate? Is it true? Okay, there's power without grace. And history will attest to this fact. The greater the power, the greater the force it can bring. You must do that. I'm always thankful that we live in, you know, countries or regions of the world where there's a measure of freedom, right? Even though peer pressures might come, but we don't have anyone saying, we're going to throw you into a fiery furnace if you don't comply with what we're saying, right? Yet throughout history, these things can be lost. And Nebuchadnezzar has absolute power, and he's going to use that power to force it. But there's two kinds of powers here. There's the power of the decree. He says the decree, the command goes out. You will bow down. But there's another kind of power too, and it's peer pressure. He's gathered together the most important people, 300,000 of them, right? That's peer pressure. Every single one of them, no one else is questioning it. They're all bowing down. There's a, there's a peer pressure there. David Jeremiah, who wrote the chapter on cancel culture I was telling you about, he tells a story about how when he was getting married, he knew that his friends were going to try to get his car. It's something that happens sometimes at weddings, right? Where they put the cans on it or they do all, they, they do all kinds of stuff to your car. So he said he had this really nice convertible Impala and he didn't want it to get messed up. So he hid it. He said, I drove it to the largest parking lot in the area, in the region. And I went in and parked it right in the middle of that parking lot. There were tons of Impalas there at the time. He said, there must have been 2,000 cars. He says, there's no way they're going to find my car. And he says, it's hidden. He says, but then he overlooked something, that when the mall closes, all those cars leave. So he said, when I went to pick it up at night, it was the only car in the parking lot, and it stood out. And these guys would have stood out. 300,000 people bowing down. There's three standing there. And there's a, there's a form of peer pressure that can try to pull you in to comply. The values of Babylon culture it values gifts, it values validation over truth, it values power without grace. Here we see it values conformity. Conformity, verses 6 to 7. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. First of all, just in that little section, that's a weird mix of instruments. I mean, the bagpipe alone, right? Maybe, maybe that, I don't know if he was just going for volume to, to get it out there, but perhaps it matched the uh, weirdness of the statue. I don't know. But what is he driving at? Conformity, right? You, you, when you hear this sound go out, our weird band of instruments, you got to bow down. It says every nation, every language, all the peoples, they bow down. And I want to point out here that there's something unique about him using those different words, nations, people, languages, because he's demonstrating that these in these, this crowd of 300,000, there's diversity. 
There's ethnic diversity. Remember, the Daniel, Daniel's friends came out of Jews. They're in exile They're, as they conquer different lands, as he brought people, ruling regions, and they all come together. There's a lot of diversity in this crowd. And what he was not doing was trying to uh, destroy the individual, perhaps, religions, like you have these three Jews. He hasn't set this up to destroy the Jews and their religion so much as to get them to acknowledge and bow down and pay homage to a symbol that represented the power of Babylon. So there's a way in which you come here, you bow down and you acknowledge, but you can go back over there and maybe practice your private faith. You see a little bit of a dissection there. As John Walford points out, the issue is more political than religious, but it was obnoxious religiously to Daniel and his three companions. In this arena, there's no room for diversity of opinion, even though there's diversity of peoples and languages and nations. And that's the dangerous thing in cancel culture. I remember one professor saying, the best place for bad ideas to die is in the arena of free speech. Because they can put it out there, and if somebody can challenge it, if it's really bad, it can fall flat on its face. And that's why I've always wondered, and I've read books on this because I talk about how I am interested in history. I like to read World War II history. And I always thought, how is it that an entire nation could come to the belief that it was okay to exterminate a people group? How? How did they come to that belief? And part of that answer is the lack of diversity in the free speech. The people who rose up were canceled out to be able to give a challenge to that. And this is what you're seeing in Babylon. That is what they value. But what kind of heart does it shape? When you live in a, in a land that has these kinds of values, you know when you live in a land, you begin to uh, buy into to the values of that culture. If you live in a culture long enough, you become not maybe perhaps 100% totally, but you begin to accept and imbibe and live out the same values of the culture that you're living in. So there's the values. Gifts over the gift giver, intolerant and diversity of thought, truth over here, as long as we conform, what kind of heart does it shape? What kind of heart will you have living in that culture? And that's what my second point is, is the heart of cancel culture. What's it going to shape? And I'm going to pause for a moment, and I want to show you this. I'm going to go to Matthew 24, and this is why, as you're hearing all this, you might be saying, this is Babylon, but it sounds like today. There's things you're saying that sound like today. Well, how about the future? Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking about the end of the age. And he says this in Matthew 24. I pick up in verse 8. It says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And I point that out because there are certain things in that warning that Christ gives that are in the future that we already see now. But we know as we get close to the end of the age, these things will increase. 
What are some of them? Well, falling away, people will leave the faith, but they'll go back. But the word betray. There'll be betrayal within the community of faith. Hatred for one another. False prophets leading you astray. Lawlessness increase, but the love of many will grow cold. Those things I'm going to show you weave into the Babylonian cancel culture as I go through this. So the heart, of, the heart that gets shaped in cancel culture is this. Number one, an attitude that lacks grace and is ungrateful. Verse 8 says, Therefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now that's interesting. And the reason I put lack grace and be ungrateful is because if you go back in the story, these guys are alive because of what these guys did. Do you remember? The wise men, the Chaldeans, they could not give an answer to the king. And he was getting mad at them. He's like, you're stalling me. You don't know the answer. I am firm. If you can't give me my answer, I am going to kill you. And they couldn't do it, right? And then Daniel steps forward. And Daniel gives an answer. And then wise men are not killed. So there's a, did you forget about that? I mean, you, you, your whole people, you would have been gone. But now you're coming forward and not, you're, you're maliciously against us. There is a disdain, a, a hatred that they have for these Jewish leaders right here. And I say leaders because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three companions, remember, they were put out in charge of, of territories. So I don't know if it, it doesn't say it exactly, but it's like we used to have more influence and power. We used to be higher up. Now these guys come along. They're here. We're underneath them. Maybe they don't like that. Maybe there's envy going on. But I want you to see the heart because the heart is malicious. Then in verses 9 to 12, we see an attitude that will betray. They declare. So remember, maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Now this word betray. So we have an attitude that, that's ungrateful, but an attitude that will betray. Now we think of betray as like, I put a knife in your back. But when Jesus in Matthew 24 says, at the end of the age, betrayal will be something that increases, that word is talking about, it's defined this way, revealing information that wasn't known with the intent to harm. That's what it means. And to me, that's like the heart of what cancel culture is. I found out something. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring it, put it public so that harm comes to that person. And that's what they're doing. They're coming forward. And you see the heart. It's, the, it, it's malicious. And they're going to tell Nebuchadnezzar about these three guys with the intent. It's not good. It's not good for them. And there's that kind of betrayal. 
You talk about people in ways that you bring up information about them that's not good for them. The Bible defines that as betrayal. You have a Christian brother in here, a Christian sister in here, and you bring up information to other Christian brothers and sisters about them, and it brings about harm. Jesus defines this as betrayal. It came out of the Babylonian values that shaped this in their heart. And in verse 12, we see that there's an attitude that bears false witness because he says this, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you say, well, pastor, how's that false testimony? Isn't it true? It's half true. Do you see what they did there? I mean, it is true. He's going to ask them, you, you don't bow down and worship? And they're going to have to answer, yes, there's truth in that, right? They, they're coming forward. Nebuchadnezzar, at least they weren't on his radar. They're not bowing down, but they're going to bring the information. They're going to betray, and they're going to say, they don't worship your gods. They don't bow down to the image you made. But look at what else they said. Did you, did you catch it? They said, they, do, they said, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. Well, that's not true. Some of the translations word it differently. They say they, they, that they give you, uh, um, well, they, they give him no respect, basically, which is not true. Because in many ways, they do respect who he is and his position, and they're serving faithfully. They're not working in a way that is robbing Nebuchadnezzar. There's many ways in which they are respecting him and paying attention. It's just on this one matter where you're telling them to bow down, they can't do that. And yet what the Chaldeans do is they come forward and they give truth, but they just take a little piece and they twist it in such a way that it makes them look even worse. Do you see that? The Bible refers to this as false testimony. God hates it. If you exaggerate in a way, if you bend the truth in such a way that makes the person look worse than what they are, and there's also an opposite one, it's where you twist it to make you look better than you are, but it, it essentially it's not truth. This comes out of the heart of the, of, of the council culture, and then we see at the end a heart full of pride. Let me read this section. Nebuchadnezzar, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, the reason why I say pride here, you're going to learn as we go how prideful Nebuchadnezzar is. But there's a couple of things going on. The one good thing I do see in there is he's given them a second chance. Because earlier he said, if you don't do it, immediate. He uses the word immediate. Immediately into the fire. But these are three of his top leaders right underneath Daniel. And they've been called out. And he's like, is it true? Are you sure? Because if you do it, you'll be saved. If not, you're going into the fire. And there's this little, perhaps, hesitation by Nebuchadnezzar. But in the end, we're going to see how his pride comes out. And this is the way I've uh, described it. 
to the prideful man, God is forgotten. We've covered that a little bit because Shadrach, whew, about to sneeze. Excuse me. If you were asleep, now you're awake. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they're part of, I've covered this in the beginning, that, that helped relieve his sleepless nights, his being terrorized by this dream, and then informed him that it's their God who made you the head of gold. Somehow he's forgotten all this. And instead, he's, he's so full of his own image of himself, he's created this image. He can't see that anymore. He can't see God because... He only sees himself, and he's forgotten that. And I put here, too, the prideful man, to the prideful man, God is forgotten, and to the prideful man, God is feeble. And we get this from the end where he says this, where he says, who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? And I think that's partly why he forgot God, because how does he know their God? He, he, uh, he, uh, deals in dreams, you know? I mean, I had a dream, you gave me the interpretation, but that's nothing compared to, I'm going to throw your body into a fiery furnace, and there, what kind of power is your God going to have over that? And there's a, there's, a, there's a picture that you get that he sees, I'm okay with this God, but this God, he's just not powerful enough over here. And he's literally saying to them, who can save you? And there's, a, there's, a, there's it's like, you're in my hands. That's how much pride, how much power he perceives in himself. You're in my hands. Your very life is in my hands. I'm going to throw you in there. Is your God going to be able to save you? And he's full of pride. He sees himself as bigger than God. And this is the thing that I, I kind of want to drive at us because it, it's layered this way. Here are the values of cancel culture. And I know this. If you live in cultures, you imbibe the values over time. You have to, if there's a culture that works against God's character, you've got you, you to work to protect yourself from becoming like the world, imbibing the values of the world. And if you imbibe the values of the world, it shapes your heart a certain way. And you're seeing the attitudes that come out of this. Maliciousness, envy, pride. These are not the attitudes that should be in the heart of a Christian. Well, what is the response? This is where we're going to land, the Christian's response. There's only three verses here. And I'm going to say this before I give you the response. Did it, did it already go up there? Oh, it did. Okay. <laughs> Where's Daniel? Did you notice that? Where's Daniel? You know, and, and there's something about the way the story is unfolded. It doesn't tell us. Like maybe Daniel was away doing something or but the the point that I kind of draw out of that is Daniel's been the guy the books about him Daniel had to step in front of the, the Nebuchadnezzar that the, the, that guy was I mean terror I mean he slaughtered families and entire houses you better get it right people were afraid of Nebuchadnezzar he's been the guy that's had to carry the weight to stand in front of of the hard situation, suddenly he's not there. And there's a little bit of like leadership, discipleship in the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to be led by Daniel. Daniel came back, said, we got to get our knees and pray. We got to seek the Lord's answer in this or, or we're going to perish. He's kind of led them along the way. Suddenly Daniel's gone. Now it's them. They got to step. They can't be behind Daniel. 
And my, one of my thoughts is I really hope that the people of our church have a Daniel that they can look to, that shows them how to walk in this world in a way that deals with struggling with the values and the confrontations, because at some point that person might get, like Daniel, out of the picture, and you're going to have to do it. You're going to be faced with a context where you've got to be a Shadrach and a Meshach and Abednego. Often we're, we say, we've got to be like Daniel. There's, there's a lot more Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednegoes than there are Daniels. But you need to find a Daniel who can help show you. That was kind of a side note, by the way, the, because it's, not, it's inferred from the text. But here's what we get from the verses. The value of not having the last word. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I read that and I just kind of chuckle a little bit. We have no need to answer you. Like they're about to be thrown into the fire. I'd be like, I'll, I'll take a lawyer right? Isn't there a process here? I mean, is it immediate? <laughs> they don't even give a defense, right? Not really. And consider the other times how we've talked about Daniel approached and he listened and he tried to discern what is it they want. They want good looking people. Well, I got a solution. I got a different diet. If it doesn't work, we'll use yours. Like find solutions that are on the middle ground, right? Uh, we're going to die. What do they want? He wants to stop having bad dreams and know what this means. So he had a solution, middle ground. There's no middle ground. And I love how the Bible gives us these different scenarios. Sometimes there's not going to be a middle ground. Yet in cancel culture, we want to fight and we want to debate and we want to argue the case. That's what cancel culture is about. And we get on social media and we, well, I'm going to leave a comment too. But you see a discipline sometimes that says, maybe you shouldn't debate. And that's the example here. I love um, the uh, illustration. <clears throat> Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC, Christian. And there's a story about him. I've told this story once before I know, but... I had the privilege of seeing him in a conference in Southern California before I came out here. He's passed away since, but he was in a classroom. His friend came to visit him. He came in towards the end of the class, and there's one student who was standing up and was given the riot act, to riot act to Dallas Willard and was giving all the reasons why there couldn't be a God and, and was really laying into Dallas Willard. And he sat there listening to him, and he got to the end, and that student sat down, and Dallas Willard was ready to respond and said, well, I guess we'll have to think about that one and talk about it tomorrow and dismiss the class. And his friend came over and said to him, because the class was over, he would have had to gone over time. He said, I can't believe that. I mean, you're the teacher. You can hold him longer. Why didn't you like totally, you, I know you, you could totally destroy his arguments. You could have made him look like a fool. And he said to him, he said, why? And Willard said, because I was practicing the discipline of not always always having to say the last word. I remember when he told that story, I was like, I didn't know that was a discipline. You know, I'm sure my wife would say that, right? We, we want to get the last word in, you know? We got to send the dive bomber in right at the last second and phew, I fired my missile. I tweeted my tweet. I posted my comment. And I think there's something here about these three guys. They discerned. There's not a middle ground here. I don't need to say the last word. And you know why? 
it's because of the next thing. Because a Christian response values the embodied apologetic. And I use this word a lot. Apologetic means defense of what you believe. In fact, it's used almost exclusively in the context of carefully worded arguments. That's what apologetics is. Carefully worded arguments. You give me your argument. I got my argument. I'm going to come at you, deconstruct yours. Apologetics. Defend what I believe. And what, what I'm saying here is an, an apologetic that isn't words. It's an apologetic that is actions and how you live. And it's exactly what they do. There's no need to answer. Verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I think what they saw was we're not going to be able to debate this. We're not going to be like the Chaldeans and stall for time. This is going to come down to we're going in the fire. So let's see if God will do it. I'm going to, I'm going to stand back and let God work. This one's a little bit harder than a diet, but I'm going to let God work. And this is what they do. So they come to this point and it give, comes to the end in verse 18. And my last value is they value God more than God's gifts. And I get this out of the words, but if not, verse 18. So he says, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And here's one of the things about cancel culture is there is a point where as believers, we have to have the courage to still speak what truth is. And they do that in the moment. They do it in the moment by saying, we cannot bow down. But there's a lot of power in these three words. But if not, because the embodied apologetic was, we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is. We're going in the furnace. And they say to him, he is able to save us. And then there's these three, three little words, but if not. You know what that means? That means sometimes God doesn't save us. And there is a theology out there that teaches that. That if you pray, if you have enough faith, you won't be sick, you won't be poor. Nothing bad happens. If something bad happens, you don't have enough faith. And here, what we see that there is a testimony in our Christian faith that says, I love God whether or not I get my prayers answered. Because sometimes we don't get saved. And history is full of examples of martyrs who died for their faith. People who, who prayed for deliverance but still got thrown to lions and died. And in this moment, do you see how the last point is a complete flip-flop from the first point? The first point was Nebuchadnezzar He's forgotten. He loves, he loves the gifts. He loves being the golden head and he's forgotten God. And there's, there's, there's a point to that. Remember, like the story with the prodigal son. Both sons, the prodigal son and the, 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 the son that, that was good, they both loved, the, they wanted their father's stuff. They loved his stuff more than the father. They just tried to get it different ways. One tried to get it, give it to me now, I'm going to go spend it. The other tried to be good. And some of, some of you might be like that. You try to get to God and answer prayers by being good. But here's the real testimony. You love God, not God's stuff. Have you ever even said the words, I love you, God? 
I grew up, I don't remember saying it much, maybe in songs, but the Spirit kind of hit me right here once when I was a younger man singing a song where the words in the song were, I love you. And I went, do I? Do you? Because if you do, then you can be like these guys in the sense that you love him, not his stuff. And it comes out in the way that we live. You can be thrown into the furnace. And I don't know what your furnace is like, the way in which cancel culture might get at you, but it's all a furnace. And if you are in the will of God and you love the Father, you know that there's nothing that can happen to you. Nothing can harm you. Nothing unless God allows it. If we get outside of God's will, we could put ourselves in harm's way. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in God's will. They have said no where God's word says no. And now they don't have to be afraid of death, worst kind of death. Well, I wanted to finish with two verses because if you are going to go into cancel culture. I'm going just a little bit long. I wanted to read this from a writer. It says, in one of the great ironies of our age, that while we are living during a time when almost any behavior is celebrated, no matter how sinful, we are simultaneously living in a time where any small misstep, public or private, could be the catalyst for our own social and financial ruin. And that's the world that we live in right now. And two verses I want to give you for how to navigate that. <clears throat> First is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know how you survive cancel culture? You have to have a heart that is full of grace and can be forgiving. Because that's living a different way than the world is shaping in your heart. The world wants to shape in your heart. You make scorn. You talk about them. You, to the extreme, destroy them as much as you can. Betray, get the information, put it out there. But we should be forgiving and full of grace. If I have a Christian brother in here and then I find out information, maybe I don't put it out there as a way to show my love to them. Maybe I go and talk to them about it privately. But we should be forgiving because we are forgiven. We are forgiven by the Father. And then lastly, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I can endure a lot of honoriness from a Christian brother if I love him. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's true of family, right? How many times have your kids or in your spousal relationship we put up with honoriness because we really love them. But do we love our Christian brothers and sisters? And in that way, we live in a way that looks alternate to the cancel culture. The cancel culture says, that's not how we do it. And we say, that's how we live as Christians. We're forgiving. We're full of grace. When we have a misstep, when we get it wrong, we're gracious to one another and we're loving to one another. And that's what I would call us to do and to be, to live in a different way. Well, next week, we'll see what happens. The uh, cliffhanger is, if you look at the next, next verse, is Nebuchadnezzar is full of fury. So we'll pick it up next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for...
your word. Thank you for the challenge of the story that we see in the lives of these three guys. Grace. We see the gospel, the gospel of grace in their lives. They live in a culture that value, has values completely different from theirs. They value the gifts that come from you. They value conformity, even when there's, there might be, it's not true. Just the values are different, God. And we see how it shapes a heart that forgets you, that becomes full of pride. It shapes attitudes that are malicious, that are envious. And I pray that we would take even just those last two verses that challenge us to be full of grace, that we're forgiving towards one another. And then we, we think about, do we love you? And do we love our Christian brothers and sisters and live as an alternate citizen here in Guam? We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we worship together.